The title of the message is The Meaning of Marriage with a little subtitle, Four Big Ideas. And we're actually going to be hovering and studying and just diving down in verse 21 down to verse 33 in the next few weeks. It's going to be a phenomenal time. Uh, Let's read it here. Beginning there in verse 21, Paul is writing, submitting to one another, or it means prefer one another, take into account one another, love one another, honor one another, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, prefer, respect, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. And therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives As their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Look at verse 31. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great, can someone tell me the next word? This is a great what? Mystery, okay? It doesn't mean like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. I mean, this is like deep. The wonder is off the charts. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Verse 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. You may have a seat at this time. Well, let me just begin by saying this. Hey, get ready, I'm telling you for the next couple of weeks, to get your mind blown away in a good way, your heart renewed and refreshed. I'm telling you the Lord is going to speak to all of us and, and encourage us and grow each one of our lives in a big, big way. And that means, listen, even if you're single, this message is for you, it's true. And if you're married, of course, this message is for you. Maybe you're divorced. This message is still for you. The Lord wants to encourage you. And listen, ultimately, it's not how we begin in life. It's how we finish. And maybe you're remarried. Okay, this message is going to be for you as well. Where are we in the great study in the book of Ephesians? Well, this is where we are. Actually, chapter 4 begins with major application. This is the 33rd message in this great book. But it begins with major application. It begins to address what we could call family matters, beginning with relationships of Christians one with another within the church family, the true counterculture to culture. And now we are specifically learning about marriage itself. And to give perspective on the weight and wonder of this subject, we might ask this, hey, why did the subject of marriage make the content of this book? I mean, theologians have called the great book of Ephesians the Alps of the New Testament because it takes you to incredible heights of the revelation of Almighty God that no astronomers ever seen, no philosophers ever seen, no scientists ever seen. We are talking about Revelation, God having revealed his will to us. It's like, what is God's will for planet Earth, for mankind, for the future? Actually, it is revealed to us in the great book of Ephesians. Well then, like, why is marriage then in such a book? Because this is a book you're telling me that has given us the highest form of knowledge, the highest form of reality, that there's a God, he has a plan for man in Christ, that everything is moving towards him. One day he creates everything new in himself. That life is not seculatory, just like you don't live and then you die and burn up, but that is life is linear, that life is moving towards the Lord himself. Why is marriage in this book? Here's the short answer. God created marriage as the highest form of relationship on planet earth. 
And it is a union that by design speaks of relationship between Christ and man. Now try wrapping your mind around that. Look, look at, the, at the screen here. We have the verse, verse 31 down to verse 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become, what's the next word? One flesh. Watch this. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Wait, 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 wait. Time out here for a second. Um, a man leaves mom, dad, cleaves to wife, new unit, new identity, new family, new nucleus, got it. One flesh. Um, is he talking about like biologically, like sexual relations? Uh, yes, but more than that. Okay, this is a great mystery, like not Sherlock Holmes mystery, but like depth, wonder, beauty. To what extent? That actually... That marriage by design is to function like Christ's love, relationship, covenant to the church? Are you kidding? It's that wonderful? It's that deep? Yeah. I mean, this oneness here is more than just biological. It's more than just being one in name. That's important. It's more than just one as a family. This great mystery speaks of a depth and beauty and purpose that is so great and weighty that you're not going to find it in any contemporary magazine or secular institution or underscored by a politician or a community leader. It's so big that it's likened to the relationship of Christ to his church. You say, like, what does that mean? How about, how about that within the marital relationship, it's a love. A love is to exist by original design that sees the other person for who they are, yet still they love. How about a love that sees you not just for who you are, but sees you for who you are becoming? How about a love that loves you not based upon how beautiful you are, but a love that actually makes the other person beautiful? The point is, Christ's relationship with the church gives actually meaning to what marriage is. Can I hear a big amen to that? So let me just say it again. What is he saying there? Oh, listen, um, like if we ask what is marriage, we're going to ask it a couple of times. But what is it exactly? Well, here's what the Bible said. You want to know the meaning of marriage? You want to understand the significance and weight and beauty of marriage? Look at Christ's relationship with his church. You're going to get an understanding of the oneness of marriage the permanence of marriage, the covering of marriage, covenant, catalysts of marriage. You say, well, how do you even begin to wrap your mind around this? It's going to take some time. That's why we're going to be here till five o'clock today. No, just kidding. It's going to take some time. You know, Paul, we haven't mentioned this, I don't think, for a long time, but Paul was in Ephesus for three years. So let me say it again. He taught in Ephesus for three years. So in principle, this tells us that behind the scenes, there's been a lot of groundwork already laid, which means that most likely the terms that Paul is using had already been defined and explained. We read them and we're like, whoa, that's heavy. Gee, what does that mean? Head. These are some explosive terms, by the way, if they're not understood in context. Submit. Whoa, that sounds oppressive. That sounds institutional. That sounds like, like so not contemporary. Please hear me. I mean, Paul spent three years in Ephesus teaching them. And, and in some ways, it just clearly stands the reason that what you're reading here is almost the cream at the top of his teaching. That they would have had a lot of background on the terms and the words and the ideas already communicating already that have, that are being communicated here we're stepping into an ongoing conversation that paul had with the church in ephesus and that's important for us to understand and it stands the reason that he had already spent time identifying this is important where they were in their culture how they thought of the opposite sex he identified it is it like look this is where you are but this is where god has intended you to be so with that in mind, 
look, let's say if, if Paul were living today and he's going to bring to us verse 21 down to verse 33, how might he do it? Um, I think he would get a running start, to be frank with you. Because it's like, husbands, love your wife, even as Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus? And what does it mean to love like Jesus? He would have to have been had, excuse me, he would have to have had a running start for sure. So let's imagine that Paul spent three years in Auburn illumining us on the revelation in Christ and God's design for relationships that he has given illumination, understanding with regard to relationships with fellow Christians, what marriage is, what, um, what parent-child relationship should look like, because no doubt he addressed those things, and in fact, he addresses them in this book. But I'm going to tell you, if Paul was going to get a running start and to address this very subject, he might say this. Please hear me. He might say, hey, look, in 2015 in America, marriage is almost a throwaway. I mean, it's so light. It's like a balloon. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, are you sure? Why do you, it's like, are you sure you're going to buy into this? It's a lightweight. It's not a weighty, significant, incredible issue. Divorce is common. The perception of those who are married are generally not happy. He might even quote the comedian Chris Rock, who said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored, you know? He would just say, look, in American culture today, marriage is almost a throwaway. But based upon his teaching here in Ephesians 5, it's obviously not... It's really weighty. It's really significant. It's off the charts. And he might say, hey, listen, I'm going to tell you guys, in American culture, the reason why marriage is going down the drains and people are talking about new models and stuff, I am telling you right now, is because you actually don't understand what marriage is. If you have a limited view and understanding of what marriage is, if you have a limited view, then you're not going to value marriage as you should. And nor are you going to experience the incredible blessings of what marriage is. And he might even say, hey, look, look show me one of your guys' smartphones. Oh, okay, like Paul would say, all right, well, look, here's an iPhone. And this actually happened to me, right? You get an iPhone. There was this little icon on my image on my iPhone of a microphone. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, for years, I didn't even, like, I didn't, I, I saw it. I would press it. It would make a little beep noise. It was aggravating, too. I had no idea what it was. I was, like, trying to shut it off and things. And, like, for two years, well, it was a voice-activated microphone. I didn't even take the time to know what it is and to enjoy its abilities, right? Well, today, marriage, in a lot of ways, is an image. People have some idea about it, but they have no idea, ultimately, of what it really is in accordance to original design. And he would say, and the reason for that is is why you're seeing it being devalued the way it is. And Paul might argue America. Hey, listen, it's a great country. It holds to the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the question is, how do you get there? Because here's the thing. There's no life, liberty, and happiness unless you're pursuing righteousness. It's true. Jesus said, blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If my aim is happiness, which is like, who doesn't want to be happy? But if that's my chief aim, it leads to addictions. It leads to dangerous um, adrenaline rushes, if you will. And this is so important to underscore because not getting this right has majorly impacted the way people actually view marriage. I mean, not getting this right has majorly impacted the psyche of men even today and how they view the opposite sex and marriage. I mean, you take marriage first. Think about it. Does marriage exist for the pursuit of personal goals, personal fulfillment, self-indulgence, and happiness? Or does it exist to create community, character, for self-denial, 
for legacy for children or perhaps generations to come. Listen, if you don't get the answer to those questions right, you may be living in illusion, looking to marriage to deliver that it was something that it was never intended to deliver. And then it's like, man, I'm out of here. Well, wait a second. I mean, what is marriage all about? Is marriage an avenue for self-indulgence? Okay, I'm going to get married, and this person's going to make me happy. It's almost like I deify them. It's almost they're a God replacement. Or is marriage a part of creating this incredible, i.e., community? I'm talking about unity between a male and a female. Is it about growing in character? Is it about self-denial? Is it about legacy? Is it about joy? Is it about the Lord? Nearly 40% of Americans believe that marriage is becoming obsolete according to a Pew Research Center survey. One star of the film Monogamy put an interview this way. They said, in this country, we have kind of failed with marriage. We're so protective of this really sacred, failed institution. There's got to be a new model. No, listen, the problem is you don't understand the model in its original design. That's what we got to get to. Can I hear an amen to that? Listen, what about the idea of the pursuit of happiness impacting the male psyche? And this is not to imply God doesn't want you to have some form of joy and happiness. But look, here's the reality. Joy, happiness is always the indirect result of directly pursuing what is right. Paul might say, um, you know, I was just reading an op-ed in the New York Times written by Sarah Limpton about how political leaders have been intoxicated with the pursuit of happiness by just leading him all these sexual, crazy liaisons. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dominique Strauss-Kahn and Mark Sanford and John Assign and John Edwards and Elliot Spitzer and Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton. All these guys were married, but then they're like off doing some crazy stuff. And she writes, somehow a need for sexual conquest, female adulation and illicit and risky liaisons seems to go along with drive and ambition and confidence in the alpha male. But she notes, this conception of masculinity is relatively new. For most of Western society, the primary and most valued characteristic of manhood was self-mastery. Rampant sexuality was something men were supposed to grow out of. In medieval political theory, young male bodies were used as symbols of badly run kingdoms. A man who indulged in excessive eating, drinking, sleeping, or sex, who failed to rule himself, was considered unfit to rule his household, much less a polity. You know, it's interesting, I did some study on, on my family, on our ancestry. So I'm like being introduced to, oh my goodness, I didn't know I even had a great-great-grandpa or great-great-grandma by the name of fill-in-the-blank. And it was just intense. And so I'd read little bios on some of my great-grandmothers and some of my great-grandfathers. And it was not uncommon as you're getting... Uh, in the early 1900s and 1800s and 1700s, it was not uncommon to see something like this, like, okay, Joshua, Wesley Denham, married, you know, Sarah, Davis. Okay, Joshua, Wesley Denham was 29. Sarah Davis was 17. And I'm just thinking, gee, Grandpa, you know, all right, all right, man. So, and it's like, oh, my dad said, hey, one thing you're going to notice, and I just kind of looked at that, well, that's interesting. Wow. So in 1850s, like, he's 30 and she's 18. And later my dad said, you're probably going to notice that a lot of times like your great-great-grandpas, they're marrying women quite a bit younger than them. Do you, do you, listen, you need to understand why. Because back then, you didn't get married until you had a job. You know what I mean? Until you could provide for all oh, that. Oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. Look, the core problem today is a flawed understanding of the purpose of marriage. And getting back to what that actor said, you know, there's got to be a new model. No, actually, we need to know what the model is in original design. So that's why I want us to begin with four big ideas. They're in your notes. We have them up on the screen. But the first is this. Having a great 
greater understanding of the meaning of marriage actually promotes a greater value of marriage, experience of marriage, and legacy of marriage. Can I hear an amen to that, right? So our objective in the next few weeks is like just to grow in our understanding of the awe and the original design of this incredible relationship that God has created because the more you grow in understanding of what it really is, like a smartphone and understanding all of its complexity, the more potential you have to enjoy it and to experience the blessings of it. I'm going to kind of call it the limited vocabulary issue, limits experience. It's like, if you ask the question, watch this, you know, what is marriage? And if someone answered, well, marriage is um, companionship, that's good. That's very biblical. By the way, if you're writing notes, that's the first answer in your notes. Number one, clearly God created marriage for companionship. That's awesome. Number two, he created marriage for procreation, for children that your children would be the flesh of your flesh, the bone of your bones with your spouse. Incredible design. Isn't that God awesome? But please hear this. If you pause right there, those two are phenomenal. We're going to talk about them. If you pause right there, you're not going to get a complete picture. It's more than that. It's much more than that. If I have a limited vocab, what's companionship in children? It's companionship in children. In this generation, what's thrown in also is a consumerism, a consumer mentality, which is, okay, I'm interested in marrying this person to be my companion, to have children with, to raise a family so long as it meets my expectations. If it's not meeting my expectations, I'm out of here. And consumerism is killing our country, the church, and family. You know, one woman opining on a chat forum on Yahoo said, out of 10 married couples, seven are miserable as Gehenna. I'm getting married next year because I love my fiance. However, if things change, I won't hesitate to divorce them. Well, that's the common thinking of today. It's like, okay, companionship, mm, you know, I love you or I like you and I want to be with you. Children, that's possible. You know, we're thinking about raising a family, but consumerism is big. How many of you believe that and agree with that? Consumer mentality, okay, I'm in it so long as it meets my expectations. Please hear me. That's major limiting of the vocabulary, if you will. And when you limit the vocabulary, I'm just using it as a metaphor of what marriage is, you limit major experience. Like, if I could just illustrate, I know you probably already got it, but You know, if I was trying to explain to someone of another culture what it was like going to a football game on Friday nights in Auburn, and if I just said to them, you know, it's a community event on Friday nights where a lot of people attend, it's exciting, and we eat hot dogs, okay? I mean, if that's all I said, that's not really identifying what it really is. Oh, no, there's competition, there's another community that comes into our community. There's, they're represented by teams and strategy. There's even a sense of transcendence, i.e., you know, I'm on one side, I'm rooting for Placer Hillman, and if they win, I win. If they lose, I'm going home kind of bummed. But if they win, I'm feeling great. That's a sense of transcendence, a part, being a part of something bigger than yourself. If we have a limited view of marriage, we're going to have a limited experience of what God has intended. We need to broaden the vocabulary. We need a biblical vocabulary. So companionship, critical. Children, awesome. But number three, and we're going to dive into this in the weeks to come. This is the third answer. Hey, marriage is a covenant. It's commitment, which is the antithesis of consumerism. It's a love contract between God and man for a lifetime. Look what... Paul writes here, really quoting from Genesis, what God has put together, let no man break apart. I mean, leave, cleave, stick as close as glue, and this incredible catalyst. That's what he's saying. Look up here for a second. Let me try to nail this. I have the privilege to preside over the wedding of our second-born son in a few months. So I can tell you probably it will go something like this. I will say, Pete and his future wife, I will say, you know, what has brought you here today is you are 
best of friends. Isn't that true? And they're like, yes. Okay, number two, you have a common faith in Jesus Christ. That's true. Yes, it's true. Awesome. And you have feelings for each other, i.e. you love each other. And that is what has brought you here today. Isn't that true? Yes. Okay, great. Awesome. So now you are ready to take a whole other step because the basis of the marriage is not what I just mentioned, actually. Oh, 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 that's very important. Feelings are very important. Friendship is critical. The Lord Jesus is critical. Got it. But the essence of the marriage, the essence of what you're stepping into has to do with a promise. Because let me just tell you something. Feelings ebb and flow. You know, it, I mean, bodies, if, if it's like the essence of marriage is not children, that's important. That's not the essence of it. Um, it's not certainly not sexual relations. It's certainly not feelings. Those things ebb and flow. Our bodies get old, so forth and so on. No, no, what has brought you here today is feelings, faith, and friendship. Oh, don't get me wrong. Very, very important. But you have to understand something. What you, you know, son, what you are saying to this woman is you will be there in 10 years by her side. What you are saying to her today, you promise, contract before Almighty God, you're going to be there in 25 years. You got, listen, what you are saying to her, whether you feel like it or not, is you're going to be there by her side. If you're alive in 50 years, okay, marriage is a covenant. It is a commitment. And therefore, the essence of marriage is not feeling sex or even children. It is a promise. So it's like, okay, son, today, um, faith has brought you here. Awesome. Feelings have brought you here. Awesome. Friendship has brought you here. Awesome. But what you are saying is you're going to take her by the hand today and you're going to walk into the sunset of life and you are never, ever, ever going to let go of her hand until you see the face of Almighty God. That's what marriage is, you see. And number two, it's a unique catalyst. Or number four, excuse me. When Jesus said the two shall become one, it's a loaded idea. The word cleave literally means to be glued together. It doesn't say the two shall become more self-indulgent or individualistic or narcissistic and live happily ever after. No, it's that the two shall become, can someone tell me, one. Man, it's an incredible, beautiful unity that requires, okay, I got to work here and mutual respect. And, and it's like I respond and I humble and I work and I listen and I give. It's like this incredible, vibrant unity that you are growing in. Certainly there is a legal aspect to marriage, a oneness. There's a physical aspect to marriage becoming one. Marriage are these things, but in essence, it epitomizes relationship. The two shall become one, not two, one. Marriage by design is purpose to fuel to cultivate the most incredible unity that is possible on planet earth not to energize individualism but to energize oneness in fact listen it's so one that what he's saying here we're going to get to it in depth but husbands love your wife even as jesus christ loved the church it's like you know when you love your wife you're loving your own body like that sounds so selfish no you got to understand what he's trying to say is when you get married you're one with her you, you're one. You, you guys, are, it's like one flesh. There's this incredible unity. So look, if, let me just put it this way. If you don't love her, you, it's like walking over there and just banging your head up against the wall. I mean, the unity is so intense and vibrant. It's like, look, the absence of love is you might as well just go find a pole and start hitting your own head. Because that oneness is just vibrant and beautiful and deep. She's your bride. You are one with her before Almighty God and holy matrimony. Number five, incredible character. Uh, you know, in this series, we're going to look in depth at what love is and what respect is. As it says in this passage, so love 
his own wife and, and the woman see that she respects her husband. What does that mean? Well, it's speaking of godly character. Number six, there's a covering of protection. Big ideas that a husband's love is to have a sanctifying influence upon this bride, upon his bride, upon the woman. That's a big idea. That carries the idea of covering and protection. Uh, he is to nourish her, cherish. Cherish means to protect, nourish is to build up. <laughs> An incredible covering of protection that exists in a marriage in accordance to God's original design. And then finally, number seven, we're going to be talking about these things, right? Because we're going to expand the vocabulary of what marriage is. Christ, no doubt. I mean, what this tells us, that's number seven if you're writing your notes. But what this tells us is, is that God made marriage to be a holy triangle, if you will, with Jesus at the top. So it's really, bear with me, marriage, God's way is an expression of one's love and worship of the Lord. So just think of a triangle. Just look up here for a second. The Lord's at the top. You have a husband and wife at the bottom. They're seeking, they're growing in the Lord. And as they do, they're growing close, closer to one another. It's like, okay, wife, you have a role as unto the Lord. And husband, you are to love her as Jesus Christ loved the church. Can I hear a big amen to that, all right? All right, let's move on. Next big point real quick. The subject of marriage, and it's there in your notes. I think it's on the screen too, is an extremely relevant subject every person. Single or married should know what the Bible teaches about marriage because marriage is the first institution God created for man and it impacts all of us directly or indirectly. Now watch this. Some of you say, well, I don't know. Man, if this subject, is that relevant for me? Um, well, how do you know? I mean, you didn't create yourself, you know. God created you. He knows what's best for us and here it's in his word and we're studying it. It's awesome. And due to the fact that we are increasingly living in a culture like the New Testament, because when this was penned, actually, the most powerful man in the world at the time was Caesar Nero, the most powerful man in the world, politically and militarily, was the emperor of Rome. He had been married twice, both to men. At one time, he was the bride. The other person he got married, he was the groom. Aren't you glad you came to church to hear that? Anyways, my point is simply this, is that, man, we need to really know what the true model is because there's nothing better than original design. So it's kind of like, hey, we're living in the New Testament period all over again. And that's why in big ways, as we continue to study this, these truths are going to pop, make sense. We're going to see the wisdom. We're going to grow and we're going to thank God for it. Hey, number three, you guys, marriage is the greatest reflection of the threefold purpose as to why God blesses us with relationships. You say, what do you mean? Well, first, he blesses us with relationships so we can be a blessing to another person. We need each other. And secondly, it is for another person to be a blessing to us, just generally speaking. But finally, the Lord uses marriage to continue his necessary work of growth and maturity in us. In other words, God has you where you're at in your marriage to continue his work of sanctification. That's a big term, but that means growth, becoming more like Jesus. I mean, here's the thing. There's nothing like marriage. I'll just speak for myself, but I know I speak for every married couple here. There's nothing like the marital relationship that reveals, that reveals, man, I need help from the Lord himself. If I think I can just draw from my own resources and strength and covering and protecting and loving my wife and my children and my grandchildren, it's like, I just can't. I hit, my head hits this, I just need his help. I mean, and, and really relationships, if we remain committed to them as God has purposed us to do, and now particularly marriage, it will reveal, oh my goodness, that third person in the marriage, i.e. Jesus, is absolutely necessary absolutely necessary. There's nothing like marriage that will reveal that we all kind of have an empty tank when it comes to our own strength, 
when it comes to like, what's the best thing to do at this time, i.e. wisdom, we will either run away and hide or we're going to run to God for his wisdom and help and strength. There is nothing like marriage that will reveal you need the Lord's help. There's nothing like marriage that says you need to be rescued actually from yourself. Listen, let me just say something about all of us, okay? You know, we're grown-ups here. It's not going to offend us. Here, look, by nature, every one of us are selfish. Every one of us have blind spots, Can you think of the beautiful genius of the Lord that he gives us a marital partner to continue his work in our life? How many of you out of curiosity know you have blind spots in life? Could you raise your hand real quick? Okay. And then the rest of you, you ought to raise your hand if you didn't raise your hand because it simply means you got a big blind spot, okay? All I'm simply saying is, like, do we see everything? Do we know everything? No. I mean, do I really know where they're coming from, what they're feeling, what's... No. I mean, look, relationships require incredible patience. The elephant in the room with regard to love, for example, is love suffers long, is really patient, right? It retreats in patience and it advances in kindness. We talked about it billions of times. We're going to talk about it all the more. There's nothing like if I remain committed to my spouse and to my church and to brothers and sisters in Christ, I realize, man, life is not easy. And and, and that just shows me my need for the Lord. And the Lord capitalizes on that adversity. And he comes and he grows me becoming more like Jesus. I'm telling you, your marriage is a love rescue from God to rescue you from yourself. It's true. It's awesome. Number four, in order to understand the terms that are being used, this is important. We must interpret them in the context in which they are found. And maybe I should have even started with this point. Both in the immediate context of the verse and chapter, as well as the context of the Bible as a whole. In other words, here's, here's my point at this, okay? If you don't interpret the term submit, in the context in which it's found most immediate in the broader context of the scripture, it's like an incendiary bomb in this generation. And, you know, I, I saw a few people get up and leave. I don't know why, but I kind of maybe thought I should, now I think I should have maybe started with this point. It's like, what, do you, what does that mean actually? And the, the husband is the head over, what does that actually mean? Listen, please hear me. If the technical meaning of these terms are not defined and interpreted in the context in which they're found, um, they, they actually kind of can blow up in a person's face. People can look at this and like almost vilify the Bible or vilify those who would believe in original design. Like go back to verse 21. Let me give you an example. Look at verse 21. That term submit there. I mean, in our culture, it makes us bristle, Right? It's almost in the category of oppression, subjugation, dominance. But here's the news flash. That call to submit comes after a long sentence of being filled with the Spirit. Actually allowing the Lord to have his way to love other people. And it's it's saying submit, prefer each other, male and female. In other words, respect, value, mutual cooperation. Get rid of the dominance. Get rid of like I'm trying to control you or something. Stop that stuff. That's not what it's saying. It's saying defer to one another, serve one another. Ultimately, the greatest problem of marriage is actually selfishness. It's true. God came to rescue us from ourselves, much less much more than, of course, than also, I should say, than the debt of sin, the consequence of sin. He brought us to bring us, he came to bring us in right relationship with him. Someone might say, well, I'm not sure about that. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That almost seems to say, does it not, that the girls, the gals, the women, (laughs) you know, were created to you know, ultimately, potentially be in a marital relationship and they're like to treat their husband as if they're Jesus Christ. That's not what it's saying at all. Context, context, context is critical. 
the center of marriage is the worship of the true and living God. It's that triangle again. What this is telling us is that a the demonstration of a wife's love for the Lord is actually seen in her being the best friend and support and helpmate she can be to her husband. So it's like saying to a woman, listen, the way you worship the Lord, honor him, the way you live out your highest purpose and, and, and to the creator who made you is, okay, is, one way, is to love your husband, to respect him. It's, he has, it has nothing to do with like see him as a little Jesus or something. That's crazy stuff. No, what you're doing, you're doing as unto the Lord. It's more of a submission. And the mission is, look, I'm going to glorify you and honor you, Lord, in my life. Wait, what about this head issue? Look at verse 23. You know, the husband is the head of the wife. I mean, this looks like the husband is some kind of CEO or boss. Why would we think that? Oh, we would think that if we're interpreting it in the context of corporate America, but we're not. Let me tell you, the role of a husband is a no-tyranny zone. It's a no-bully zone. It it has nothing to do with like, I am Tarzan and you are, you know, the rest, right? Jane. That's ridiculous. The call that the husband is the head is a call of really a servant leader in the marriage and in the home. Ken Hughes nailed it. He said the husband is to exercise his headship with a savior-style servant leadership. He must lead with the kind of love that's willing to die. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And again, he said, let him who is the greatest among you be the servant of all. Let me personalize it, okay? I'll personalize this, thinking about this. I am to love my wife even as Jesus Christ loved the church. I have a responsibility within our home. But listen, I am under authority. It's like the President of the United States, he's under the authority of the Constitution of the United States, right? He's a man of authority, under authority. How many of you are tracking with me with that idea? Okay, watch. Okay, well, I have a certain responsibility within our home. Okay, a certain authority, if you will. Okay, role, very important. But I am under the authority of the one who demonstrated the greatest selfless love ever seen in the history of men. In other words, the capt- my captain is Jesus. My captain is Jesus who on the cross said, forgive them, they have no idea what they're doing. I mean, he had an incredible understanding of man. He wasn't some whacked out demagogue. He didn't come into Jerusalem with a sword like you. He wasn't an Islamic invader. He came to win people's hearts by giving his life on the cross, was buried, resurrected, ascended, and he's coming again. It's like, wait, hold on a second. You gotta understand, I mean, um, to say he's my mentor is silly, right? He's my Lord, he's my savior, but he's like the captain of my salvation. I am a man under authority. So I can tell you there are times that I have thoughts like this, all right? And then based upon the authority of the word of God, hey, Greg, what? Are, are you a humble man? What do you, what, do you, what do you mean, humble? That kind of offends me. I'm just kidding. What, what do you mean, humble? Um, like, are you teachable? Are you willing to listen? It's like that young woman who asked the pastor one time, what's the chief characteristic I should look for in a husband? He said, teachability. Are you teachable? Because if you're teachable, then that means you're willing to listen. You're willing to be contradicted. Ah, you're moving in one direction, and it's like, why don't you stop and turn around? Ooh. See, it was more comfortable moving that, right? Right. Okay, stop. Turn around. Step out of your comfort zone. Listen, grow, change the way you think, adjust, become more like Jesus, Greg. A husband is under, the head of the husband is Jesus. 
So the leadership and the affluence of a husband in a family is a servant leader. Can I hear a big amen to that? If the call of the husband is to love his wife by serving her with a self-sacrificial love, that involves really knowing her. And that's an awesome opportunity. It is. Oh, we could tell all the silly jokes about, you know, who can really understand a woman. I kind of hate those jokes, although I'm going to tell you one in just a moment. You know, you know, it's like, you know, the guy's walking on, there's this bottle and he opens and this genie pops out and it's, it's like, you know, ask whatever you want. He says, well, I'd love a highway to Hawaii, you know, it'd just be fantastic. And the genie's like, no, just, you can't ask that. The cement, the infrastructure's way too much. And we're on a budget these days, you know what I mean? And so it's like, ask anything else. And he says, well, I would love to understand women. And the genie said, would you like that highway two lane or four? You know what I mean? So, all right, all these stupid jokes. Here's the thing. You have an awesome opportunity to get to know a beautiful human being. It's like, you know, you go to a restaurant, the waiter or waitress cannot serve you unless they know you. Peter said, dwell with your wife according to understanding. Know her. That means listen. That means like journey life with her. What an awesome opportunity. Listen, I have performed many weddings or presided over many weddings. And I want to tell you, it never ceases to amaze me that when when the model of marriage is clearly explained, i.e. from Scripture, okay, and you have a great opportunity to do that in a wedding, I am telling you, every time people come up and go, whoa, it's like people are thirsty to know the original design of the most beautiful, intimate relationship that is possible on planet Earth Can I hear a big amen to that? And here we've been talking about marriage, as you well know. Do you know the Bible speaks so much of marriage? I mean, like the Lord called the first wedding and then he presided over Genesis chapter three. The the Bible begins with the wedding, but did you know it actually ends with the wedding as well? I mean, that's, that's like, what are you talking about? Well, actually this incredible union between Christ and those who know him have relationship with him in the Father, And actually, the Bible uses marital terminology, which is big in romance, big in depth, big in commitment. It's like, you know, we have our grandchildren at home these days, and I have a four-year-old grandson named Greg Denham, and he told me yesterday, he was out riding his bike, and he said, I I am, I am, I am in the process or something like that. I want to be a strong person or strong young, you know, kid or something. And I, and, and we, and you know, Papa, that's what I want to do. And I, that's great, great. That, that, that's awesome. And I'll just tell you one of the ways to be strong is to love and to protect and stuff. I kind of try to shoot something in there, you know, I mean, Here's the thing. We talk about marriage. We're talking about the highest love. We're talking about the highest strength. We're talking about highest perseverance and patience. We're talking about a love for a lifetime. We're talking about an incredible union. We're talking about a wonderful unity between two human beings. For the Lord to actually use marital terminology to speak of the relationship that he wants with every single one of us is absolutely beautiful. But the question ultimately becomes, have you received his proposal, because actually he's made a proposal with every single one of us. I I ask seriously, have you received Christ's love? You received his proposal? You know, he said that he he goes away to prepare a place. He's going to come back and receive us to himself. Well, actually, that was terminology of a fiance to a fiance in the first century. So if you wanted to marry a, a gal, you would actually go to her house, talk to her dad, probably bring your dad, bring a gift, make a proposal. If she accepted it on the spot in Hebrew culture, you're married. Even though you haven't known each other, you're married. 
Then the fiance would then leave just stoked. You don't mind if I use that word, yeah? Uh, Just really excited, right? He's going back with dad. He's going to go prepare a place for his bride. And he's going to come unannounced in Jewish first century culture. And he's going to receive uh, his bride to himself and take her back to the new home that he has purchased. Well, I'm going to tell you something. The Lord has reached out to you and you and you and all of us. And he's knocking on the door. In fact, he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. He wants to have relationship with you. He's, he's making a proposal to you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you enough not to leave you the way you are. I, I just want this killer unity with you. I want this fantastic relationship with you now and forever. Can I hear a big amen to that? I mean, is that awesome or what? The question is, are you going to receive it? You say, well, why should I even take it seriously? Here's why. Jesus resurrected from the dead. He is who he claimed to be. He is alive. And his resurrection clearly demonstrates that what he said, what he communicated, what he preached is true. Look, I stand here today as a believer that Jesus is the Son of God based upon the overwhelming evidence that he is, that he hung, bled, gave his life on the cross 2,000 years ago, then resurrected from the dead, He's come into my life by his grace. He's brought incredible healing and transformation and assurance of hope beyond the grave. He wants to give that to you as well. And what is it? What is like Christianity? Oh, it's a relationship with the Father in Christ. You say, well, what must I do to have this relationship? Basically three things. Number one, recognize what he's done for you. He not only made you, he not only created you, but he has revealed himself to you. He's reached out to you in Christ. Number two, it's critical that you repent. You say, well, Greg, how do I repent? I'm not even sure if I've pented before, but repent means to change the way you think, actually. That leads then to a a different trajectory, a different lifestyle, but it's going to change the way I think with regard to Jesus. And number three, it's to receive him. Because those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be, can someone tell me, saved. Yeah. 